everybody and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to episode 12, The Yukon. We've got another delay in episode production, and for that I apologize. Between a short trip to Denver and a few extra Victoria walking tours, I didn't have enough time to release this over the weekend, so we're now back to the regular Monday-Thursday release schedule for the Yukon and BC. With that being said, in researching today's episode, I kept coming across little leads of stories, just small notes that gave me pause and made me want to look into it further. For almost every story included in this episode, there is some small twist or intriguing historical connection, often with very surprising results. And what better way to represent ghost stories from the Yukon? These tales come from towns that were formed by necessity, a conglomeration of hundreds of people from all walks of life and from all over the world. In places like Whitehorse and Dawson City, our two main focal points for today, you would have people living side by side that wouldn't be found together in almost any other place. These men and women mostly set their differences aside in favor of a common goal striking it rich, either in the gold mines or in the towns of miners. This history of sudden explosions of population, and the dwindling of those towns' populations in the years to follow give our episode today its distinctive taste, and we'll begin with an excerpt from a poem that really epitomizes the strangeness of these places. I'm quite sure you'll be familiar with it. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold, and the Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake Labarge that I cremated Sam McGee. That's how Robert Service opens his poem, The Cremation of Sam McGee, and while it's not a sight you're ever likely to see on Lake Labarge, just north of Whitehorse, you still have a strong chance of seeing something just as strange. Standing on the shores of the big lake, people will see a small sternwheeler paddling along. At first they think it's an old heritage ship, out for a spin, perhaps in preparation for some summer events. There seems to be a handful of people on board, too, about five or so. Then, as those on shore are watching it, 
the sternwheeler becomes somewhat misty, and it slowly disappears, leaving but a trace of glowing light in the waters where it sat a moment before. The sighting of this ghost ship is fairly well known, although one problem presents itself to any witnesses. There is a name printed on the front of the boat, that much is clear, but for some reason no one has ever been able to see the name clearly enough to read it. Even without the ship's name, there is more than enough evidence to say with a degree of certainty that this phantom boat is the echo of the old A.J. Goddard. The small sternwheeler A.J. Goddard had serviced gold miners from Bennett, British Columbia, to Dawson City, Yukon, and everywhere in between. In October of 1901, the A.J. Goddard was on Lake Labarge hoping to make it to Whitehorse with five people on board, Captain, Cook, Fireman, Engineer, and Solitary Passenger. I use the word hoping to make it to Whitehorse, because on October 11th, a violent storm arose, causing steep waves and very dangerous sailing conditions, which tossed the little boat back and forth. The Klondike Nugget newspaper called it the worst storm of the year, and the people on board the A.J. Goddard would certainly have agreed. They were experiencing it firsthand and rapidly discovered that the boat stood no chance. It took on water, which extinguished the boiler fires, leaving the sternwheeler powerless. The force of the waves proved to be too much. The A.J. Goddard ripped apart and sunk to the bottom of Lake Labarge, a few hundred meters from shore. Captain Charles MacDonald, Cook Fay Ransom, and Fireman John Thompson all quickly drowned. Engineer Julius Stockfield and passenger C.P. Snyder clung to the pilot house floating in the waves for over an hour in the raging storm. Heroically, a local trapper spotted the figures out on the lake and hurried out in his rowboat, braving the elements and rescued the poor men by bringing them back to his cabin for rest and warmth. Stockfield and Snyder miraculously survived the freezing lake temperature and stormy weather winds thanks to the trapper's timely and brave intervention. For over a hundred years, the remains of the A.J. Goddard lay undetected at the bottom of Lake Labarge. It was finally located in 2008, after many search attempts over the years. Since then, divers have brought up many artifacts, including Stockfield's shoes, which he lost in the struggle. The finding of the wreck seems to have had no bearing on the ghost ship, still sailing the waters just north of Whitehorse, though. The A.J. Goddard in its misty form is still seen just as often as it ever was, peacefully cruising the surface of Lake Labarge before vanishing into the crisp northern air.
Clive was a pilot who loved airplane artifacts and antiques, which is why he simply jumped at the opportunity to buy a 1940s Piper J3 Cub plane at a Yukon aircraft auction for a very cheap price. Despite the plane's age of around 50 years, Clive was able to find the parts fairly easily and restore it and add it to his collection. It flied nicely, perhaps rather too nicely, as Clive found out in February of 1992, not long after he had purchased it. His phone rang, and on the other end of the line were some very angry and very confused admin at the airport where he had been keeping his planes. Something strange had happened, and Clive was wanted down at the airport that instant. It would turn out to be something much more than just strange. Clive hopped into his car and sped down to the nearby airport. His engine was hardly off before a handful of men were banging on his door, all abuzz with questions and bewildered looks. Clive got out, demanded that they calm themselves, and asked for one person to tell him what the blazes was happening. An airport attendee spoke up. Clive's Piper J3 Cub had been tied down just as Clive had left it, but somehow it had taken off flown over to a row of small aircraft, and landed upside down, perfectly perched on top of another plane. In fact, if it had come to rest a few inches off in any direction, the balance would have been skewed, and the plane would have tumbled down onto the ground. This had to be some kind of joke, thought Clive, and yet the earnest looks on the terrified faces around him told him otherwise. These weren't just folks from the town who might play a prank. These were stunned aircraft owners and mechanics, just like himself, alongside airport employees. Clive asked to see the aircraft. The crowd took him around to the tarmac, where there indeed was his J-3 Cub, balanced precariously upside down on top of a similarly sized white plane. Seeing as this had obviously never happened before, the airport staff weren't exactly sure how to get the J-3 Cub down safely without damaging it or the other plane. It was going to require some equipment too big for their little airport to have at the ready, so it was decided that they would tie the two planes together so wind wouldn't blow the J-3 Cub off and wreck both planes over the night. They would be separated the next day. This seemed reasonable, and all in attendance agreed. That is, except for the plane. Before they could even get rope to tie them with, the J-3 Cub lifted up into the air like a helicopter. Still upside down, it accelerated forward and looped a hundred meters into the air, descended, landed, and stopped two feet from where Clive and everyone else was standing in shock and awe at this pilotless daredevil. Finally, once the motor had quieted and they were sure the plane was off, they quickly tied the J-3 Cub to the spot and used an airport truck as an anchor. What on earth had been happening? It turned out that the plane was up for sale at the aircraft auction for a very good reason. Its former owner, a collector and fine pilot himself, had been killed in a flying accident in 1990. Everything that he had collected was put up for auction, including the J-3 Cub plane which Clive had purchased. Thankfully, Despite a few more strange spectacles, nothing dangerous ever happened inside that plane, at least while anyone living was flying it.
The next three stories all have something in common. They're all centered on old theaters. Theaters are often notoriously haunted places due to the exuberance and energy expounded by the actors and guests found inside them. They were the lifeblood of any business people up in the Yukon, and they welcomed in just about every traveler who ever set foot in the territory. As such, you're bound to encounter some rather famous names when you look closely at these stories. In December of 2006, Jenny was working on repairing some flooring of the Guild Hall in the northern part of Whitehorse. She was the new manager of the hall and was getting to know it intimately, often spending hours there alone at night working away as she was here. While she was focused on the flooring, she heard somebody come in by the front doors and stomp their feet to shake off snow. She looked over and saw a young man in military dress. An odd visitor at such a time, but stranger things have happened. Jenny called out for him to wait a moment as she put away her tools. Standing up, she now turns toward the front doors and found herself alone. The lights in all other parts of the guild hall were off, all doors locked, and every room empty. This man had seemingly vanished into thin air. It was unlikely he had gone back outside. She would have heard the doors open and close again, but it was worth a look. She opened up the doors to see the empty street covered with snow, pure, untouched, freshly fallen snow, all the way up to the doors of the Guild Hall. Do you know what that signified? There was a complete absence of any footprints. Jenny was worried. Having been such a staunch skeptic, she was concerned about having a brain tumor or something like that to cause her to become delusional. Fortunately for her, she soon found out that she was not delusional. Other people had seen him too. He is seen coming in the front doors, or going into the washroom. Interestingly, when large groups are nearby, some people will see him and others will not. Those who do encounter him feel like he's upset that they're in his space. It, it wouldn't be entirely his space, though, as other ghosts seem to lay claim to the guild hall as well. Another common experience is when people hear kids running around and their mother clapping and calling for them to settle down. Jenny, like everyone else, hears them as if they're running around upstairs. That's not so bad. It could be anyone, you might think, until you remember that there is no second floor of the building. Items will go missing and turn up in random places. Actors will find their makeup and equipment hidden in other actors' stations, Lights will turn on and off, and the sound system will frequently go on the fritz. All of this, plus the occasional visits from the children or the army man, became too much for Jenny to deal with at once. She came up with a good plan on how to get everything under control. She called out to them one day after a particularly harrowing series of events. I never want to see you again, and if you did have to show yourself, I won't work here anymore. It worked. She hasn't seen any of the ghosts ever since. She still hears them, though, and they still move things around. If she had known they were going to listen to her, she might have made her demands even more specific. 
she was just another face in the immense crowd of people migrating to the Yukon during the days of the gold rush, although she had no intention of panning for gold. No, she already had a good deal of cash to her name, and it was her plan to use this money to set up a theater which would serve to transfer gold from the miners' grubby hands into her nicely kept purse. New York City was where Kathleen Rockwell got her start as a chorus girl, but it was Dawson City that afforded her an alliterative moniker that would be remembered throughout the ages and always associated with Dawson City. Klondike Kate There were few proper theatres in Dawson City when she arrived, which suited Kate perfectly. It was her chance to build her fortune. Before she could get a good look around, a Greek man by the name of Alexander Bantages intervened. With Kate's money and Alexander's ability to exploit people with money, they were a wonderful match. He seduced her and convinced her to invest in a vaudeville theater he had been planning for months. His only obstacle was a lack of funds, but together he and Kate could consolidate their efforts toward a single goal. This was a very attractive pitch by a very attractive man, and Kate was sold. Together they opened up their theater, the Orpheum, to great success. Its stage saw singers, dancers, storytellers, comedians, even trained animals. Anyone with an act was welcome. The biggest spectacle, however, would happen off stage when Alexander Pantages pulled off a disappearing act, vanishing along with a lady violinist to whom he had taken quite a shine. The two ran off to the United States with grand dreams of opening up Orpheums all across the continent. Pantages was initially extremely successful, running vaudeville and movie theaters across the western United States and Canada. His empire came crashing down in 1929 when he was accused of rape. While he walked away a free man thanks to some disgusting arguments from his lawyers, the trials were exceedingly expensive and left a huge black mark on his career. Alongside the market crash of that year, Pantages was forced to sell off his theaters, which did him little good. He died seven years later a poor man. I've left out a lot of the details of the trial, as while they're interesting and Klondike Kate was even brought in to testify against him, I can't justify including such potentially triggering material, especially when it has little bearing on the ghost story itself. There are plenty of accounts of it online if you wish to look into it. It certainly is very dramatic, but with a disheartening show of humanity. Speaking of disheartening, Long before any of that scandal took place, Klondike Kate was still recovering from the heartbreak of being abandoned by her lover up in Dawson City. Pantages had deserted her, and her future in the Yukon looked bleak. She, too, descended to the United States to perform in vaudeville shows around the Northwest to mixed success. Eventually, she received a letter from a miner, Johnny Matson, who had fallen in love with her back in Dawson City. Even after all these years, he was still pining after her. They were married for thirteen years under rather odd circumstances. Johnny remained up in the Yukon, and Kate took up residence in Bend, Oregon. They would meet up only once a year, almost always in the Yukon, and only write to each other twice a year, although Johnny would send Kate jewelry every Christmas, even though he never struck it rich in his gold mining endeavors. Johnny Matson was later found dead outside his cabin attacked by wild animals. This didn't dampen Kate's spirits too much, though, as she would eventually marry again. She remained a vivacious and popular woman in Oregon, known more for heroic fundraising efforts and charitable work than her vaudeville career. 
That's a lot of history to unpack, and you're probably wondering where do the ghosts come in. It would seem we're a little off track at the moment, and I would actually like to keep it that way for just a little longer. This is a prime example of what I meant at the beginning of this episode when I said I kept finding all sorts of little stories that just kept going and going with loads of interesting little tidbits. 26 months before her death, Klondike Kate appeared on Groucho Marx's classic game show You Bet Your Life alongside Walter Knott, the original proprietor of the famous Knott's Berry Farm in California. Groucho kept making jokes about Walter's surname, and while Mr. Knott looked like he was finding the quips anything but amusing, there was Kate beside him chuckling away at every joke. While Kate had simply been introduced as Kate Van Duren, her surname at the time, it was eventually revealed that she was the one and only Klondike Kate. You can tell by the lengthy applause that followed the revelation that Kate had certainly made a name for herself in show business. Groucho's response? Well, what do you know, Klondike Kate, eh? Didn't you shoot somebody, Dan McGrew or Sam McGee or someone? Kate laughed and said no, but Bob Service had told her all about those stories that came from his imagination. What a crazy link to the past. When this podcast is over, go on YouTube and look up Groucho Marx, You Bet Your Life, Klondike Kate. She comes on at the 1510 mark of the video. You know, it's a strange feeling to find that recording and watch this person who I had been researching and then kind of say out loud, I know where your ghost is. Time is a weird concept. It certainly did a number on Dawson City's theaters. The Orpheum was torn down in the 1960s and a replica of it was rebuilt. Even during construction, workers would catch glimpses of a very pretty lady in a flamboyant dress watching them. She would smile or even wink before disappearing. A couple of travelers arrived in Dawson City from Alaska and found themselves practically penniless and with nowhere to stay. Overnight, they took shelter in a space underneath one of the theaters in town, but had a horrible rest. They kept getting woken up by clattering sounds on the floor just above their head. Even at two, three in the morning, it seemed as if someone was practicing tap dancing in the theater, preventing the two travelers from getting back to sleep. In the morning, they found out that the theater had been entirely empty for the whole time. The cause of the noises? Who could say for sure, but Klondike Kate got her start up in the Yukon with her tap-dancing act. She's seen quite often nowadays, almost flirting with theater-goers before vanishing. I'm sure she's glad her theater is being maintained and that her legacy is being kept alive. Some of her most exciting years were spent up in the Klondike, where she raked in the cash and lived like a queen. It was certainly more profitable than her game show career, where she netted $57.50 after blanking on the name of King Arthur's wife, and which she had to split with the owner of Knott's Berry Farm. Now she's a tap-dancing ghost. I give up on trying to comprehend any of these stories. Canada in the Yukon now runs many haunted locations, although of course they are operated as heritage sites, not paranormal hotspots. Among these are places like Dredge No. 4, the Kino, and of course the Palace Grand Theatre in Dawson City. Built in 1899 by Arizona Charlie Meadows, the building is packed with all kinds of ghostly activity, 
Custodians will see lights on in rooms upstairs, which will have been turned off by the time they can walk up the steps to inspect them. Employees and guests alike will often smell roses or rose water in Arizona Charlie's old box seats. For the guests, experiences such as these are often neat little encounters, nothing more than a story to tell friends once they get back home. For employees, though, there's really no escaping the presences that roam the old theater's floors. Emily was a stage manager, and in 2004 was working with the lighting designer around 11 o'clock p.m. The two were the only ones left in the building, the actors having long since gone home. That's why both Emily and the lighting designer were startled when they heard loud, heavy footsteps on the top balcony. The slow, deliberate steps noisily paced from one side of the theater all the way to the other, as if someone were circling the two employees from above. They looked at each other and wordlessly agreed to leave. One evening, while running a show, Emily decided to pop out from the backstage area and head up to the box seats to catch a little of the performance. There was a small audience that night, so the whole upper floor was empty, and there was a long stretch in the performance where Emily had nothing to do, so why not head up and watch from the audience's perspective? She ascended to a box up top and watched a solo performer sing a song before returning back down to the wings. After the show, she congratulated the soloist on his fine performance. He smiled and thanked her, telling her he noticed her watching him from the top floor box seats. He also asked who her friend was, and what he thought of the performance. Friend? Emily had been alone in the box. The performer must have been mistaken. He shook his head. He told Emily that he most definitely saw her up in the box seat standing right beside a man in dark pants, a dress shirt, vest, and jacket. It would have been impossible for her to have missed him. They were so close they could have been holding hands. Emily's face drained of color as she realized that the whole time she had likely been standing right next to a ghost. The identity of this ghost was never found out although it quite easily could have been the presence of Arizona Charlie himself. He's often seen throughout the building along with a few other specters, including Klondike Kate. Encounters with these spirits are frequent but not usually threatening. I think they just want to see a good show. We're going to break away from famous names and turn our attention towards a famous building and a famous ship. The stories about these next two features are endless, and I really could do a full episode on each one. Sadly, we don't have the time for that, at least not today. What we can do is get ourselves a taste for some of the more complex histories of the Yukon, such as these. Part of my research for these episodes took me onto social media to inquire about stories from Facebook groups and pages. I was especially interested in using social media to find stories from the three territories, as most of the documented information about hauntings in this country tended towards stories from the provinces. There was very little I could find easily about the North, and what I could uncover was usually a few lines here and there with little to no corroboration from other sources. Unfortunately, 
I wasn't able to tap into any Facebook pages concerning ghost stories from the Yukon, but I was able to ask in the Yukon History and Abandoned Places Facebook group, which is quite active and was very helpful. When I informed the people there that I was looking for leads on Yukon ghost stories, I received a good deal of very helpful responses, and the story that I was most often pointed toward was about the Caribou Hotel. Upon looking into it, I realized how right these folks were to get me onto this story's scent. The Caribou Hotel overlooks Bennett Lake in Carcross. The original building had actually been floated across the lake from Bennett to Carcross in a very careful and precarious endeavor. It was ever so gently lifted up off the barge and laid down alongside the road. They had done it. Fears of the barge tipping, or otherwise the hotel sinking, were squelched. It had arrived safe and sound and was ready for business. Sadly, it burned down the next year. That didn't stop the good people of Carcross from rebuilding it and opening up the second edition of the Caribou Hotel in 1908. That one has stayed up, and still stands to this day, although it had fallen deep into disrepair. If you find yourself in Carcross any time soon, however, you won't find some dusty old derelict, a shell of the hotel's former self. You'll find instead a renovated, up-to-date, fully functioning building, a replica of the old Caribou Hotel with antiques and heritage items galore. The idea was to reinstall the pub, restaurant, and eleven upstairs rooms and open it back up for business. It was while doing the renovations that the current owners started to clue into the building's very haunted past. They would be alone in the hotel, down on the main floor, and hear hammering from upstairs like someone was working on one of the rooms. When inspected, the source of the hammering could never be found. They grew accustomed to these noises, hearing them many times throughout each day. The hotel had originally been built by Mr. W. H. Simpson. Was this Simpson's way of helping out with the reno, or at least giving them his stamp of approval. While that might be a tenuous connection for some, there is a different ghost in the building who has very much stated her presence in the hotel, and whom you would not confuse for anyone in the building's past save for Mrs. Gideon. She was a former owner of the Caribou Hotel, and has seen, felt, and heard all throughout the building. Sudden icy patches in the air will manifest in various spaces in the hotel, People in the upstairs rooms will hear someone come knocking only to find the hallway empty. Citizens of Carcross won't be surprised to look up at the caribou's upstairs windows and see a woman standing in one of them looking back down into the street. Perhaps most eerily, she has been known to visit people as they sleep in the hotel overnight. For example, years ago, a man who had formerly leased the hotel was upstairs in his room fast asleep. In the dark of the night he was woken up, not by any movement, not by any sound, by the feeling of being watched. He opened his eyes and saw a woman standing in the door. When she saw that he was awake, she walked up to his bed and stood, just glaring at him. The man initially thought her to be one of his housekeepers and wearily asked what she was doing in the room. The woman said nothing, but left and walked toward the stairs. The way she had silently stood and stared had unnerved the man, so he jumped out of the sheets and quickly followed after her. He exited his room and turned toward the stairs. There was no sign of her. Not in the hall, not anywhere downstairs. 
and he had never heard the stairs creak under the pressure of her feet. All was silent. After spending the rest of the night awake and somewhat frightened, he got dressed and went downstairs to open up the restaurant for the day. Shortly after, an elderly local fellow wandered in to say hello and noticed the sleepless look in the man's eyes he returned the morning greeting. When told about the midnight intrusion and the disappearance of the woman in the hallway, the local asked about her exact appearance. The description was a perfect match of the old Mrs. Gideon he had known years ago before she died. The hotel's future is looking bright and has attracted some attention in recent years for the renovations and plans to open up again. The current owners fully embrace the hotel's haunted history, agreeing to interviews on Travel Yukon's YouTube channel for a miniseries called Yukon Paranormal. Their crowning jewel was recently when a stamp of a lady's skeleton overlooking the hotel was made to commemorate haunted places in Canada. Over the years, the Postal Service has put out a few different ghostly stamp series, and you'll probably recognize many among them from past episodes on this very podcast. Joining the Carcross Hotel in the Yukon, we have the Phantom Bride of the Bamp Springs Hotel in Alberta, the St. Louis Ghost Light, Saskatchewan, Fort George, Ontario, Marie-Joseph Corriveau, Quebec, the Dungarvan Whooper, New Brunswick, the Phantom Bell Ringers of the Kirk of St. James, PEI, Ghost Ships from the Maritimes, and lastly, we go all the way back to Canada Day and the very first story on our very first episode, The Swamp Hag of Bell Island, Newfoundland. Quite the collection, eh? The owners are very proud to have their building honored in such a way. After all, they put so much work and energy into restoring the building to its former glory. It just opened up earlier this year, and if you ever get the chance to stay in it, be sure to do so. You'll see just why the owners have fallen so in love with it. One of them, Anne, loves it so much that she says she's looking forward to coming back and haunting it after she's long dead and gone. Knowing the ghosts of W.H. Simpson and Mrs. Gideon have likewise hung around, I wouldn't be surprised in the least if that's exactly what Anne did. the SS Princess Sophia was incorporated into the Canadian Pacific Railroad to connect Skagway, Alaska with Victoria, British Columbia. It was designed to be a member of the luxurious Princess Fleet, and also built for extreme northern conditions such as the treacherous ones lining the Alaskan Panhandle on the coast of northern British Columbia. For six years, it served as a reliable and comfortable way of traveling between the busy ports of Victoria and Skagway, and many people who sought the mountains of the Yukon entered into the territory via this boat. They would dock in Skagway, and from there travel through the mountains by train and sternwheeler to get to the Klondike. It was a vital route, and it saw heavy traffic over the years. Now, due to the rough conditions of the northern waters in winter, 
Once October drew to a close, anyone up in the Yukon was essentially stuck there over the winter, which was a long, cold, and dark time. Which is why October of 1918 saw the Princess Sophia packed with hundreds of people heading back down south on the very last ship out of Skagway for the winter. Not everything was running smoothly leading up to the departure, however. Several passengers had sold their tickets to avoid getting on the Princess Sophia, where it was rumored that some of the crew were ill with the dreaded Spanish flu. These ticket holders had no problem finding eager takers for their passes, though, as people were scrambling for a place on board that ship. The day it was to set sail, a pair of brothers destined for the Princess Sophia had an equal but polar opposite experience. Second officer Frank Goss and his brother Walter were attending a dance in Skagway in the hours preceding the ship's departure. The dance ran late, forcing Frank and Walter to hightail it to the docks. While Frank's speedy legs carried him to the ship, narrowly making it on board before it pushed away from land, Walter trailed behind and did not arrive in time. Initially, Frank was seen as the lucky one. Time would prove the opposite to be true. As the ship departed that night, many passengers went straight to bed. Several of them were wrought with nightmares within a few hours of leaving Skagway. All of these disturbed slumberers reported horrible visions of shipwrecks haunting their dreams. It made for a very uneasy first night. Captain Leonard Locke was in charge of guiding the Princess Sophia safely to its destination. He was a veteran of the passage and knew the waters well. However, shortly into their journey, the wind began to pick up and dark clouds covered the sky. Night fell, and with it came an intense squall. Captain Locke found the Princess Sophia sailing down the Lynn Canal in total darkness, pounded by high waves, heavy winds, and whiteout snow conditions. Those are problematic enough in modern-day boats, but back in 1918, the Princess Sophia had no GPS to guide it through troubled waters. The windows in the cabin were tiny and not meant for navigating tough conditions. There was very little visibility offered for those commanding the ship. Most navigating was meant to be done by compass and maps, not by eyesight. With the terrible weather tossing the Princess Sophia off course, Captain Locke employed a rather last resort method of navigation. Blowing the ship's horn and recording the time between blast and echo bouncing off the mountains, in an inaccurate and artificial system of echolocation. As you can probably imagine, the system failed them. The Princess Sophia struck the Vanderbilt Reef in the Lynn Canal head-on at 11 knots. The boat was traveling fast enough that it grinded to a halt, stuck on the reef unmoving. It was double-hulled, and the inner hull was still intact, so no water was leaking in, which was promising. Captain Locke believed the waters outside would calm soon, allowing them to dispatch lifeboats and safely move people to the nearby shores. So confident was Captain Locke that he even dismissed passing ships who had offered to try and help. Of course, these rescue ships didn't share Captain Locke's confidence, so they promised to come back later and check in on their welfare. That they did in the evening, but the storm was still raging more than ever, and they could not get close enough to offer assistance. It was decided that if the Princess Sophia had lasted this long, surely they could wait out the night. The rescue ships would return in the morning. On board the Princess Sophia, passengers initially remained quite calm. 
The captain informed them that the boat wasn't going anywhere and certainly wasn't taking on water. There was no need for alarm. In a letter to his mother, one passenger wrote, No panic. This wreck has all the signs of a movie setting. All we need is a hero and a vampire, alluding to the fantastical world of silent movies that were so popular at the time. I guess a lot of movies had vampire-specific villains. His letter penned the truth for the time being, though. Their only inconvenience, he reported, was a lack of drinking water. Not too shabby for a ship of hundreds, high and dry on a reef, in the midst of a freezing storm. All that changed when the boat's electricity cut out and the cabins were plunged into darkness. Captain Locke began to fear that night that the storm wouldn't calm down any time soon. The boat started to creak as more and more waves pounded the side of it. No one was allowed to sleep in case the Princess Sophia slipped off into the surging waters. Many passengers were instructed to begin making out wills, and almost everyone began writing tearful goodbyes to loved ones. A dear letter to his fiancée was scribbled out by Jack Maskell, assuring her he loved her very much and that all he had would be left to her. After forty hours of being stuck on the reef, the SS Princess Sophia was finally swept off into deeper waters. The ocean began to flood the cabins. The last words ever heard from the Princess Sophia were of Captain Leonard Locke, his desperate plea for rescue reading, For God's sake, hurry! Water coming into room. Learning from the disastrous Titanic wreck six years earlier, the SS Princess Sophia had enough lifeboats for everyone on board, but none of them could be safely lowered thanks to the stormy ocean waves and the hard, deadly reef. Anyone who tried to swim to shore did not make it very far. They all died, not from drowning or exposure like you might imagine, but of asphyxiation from the ship's leaking oil. Among hundreds of passengers on board, there were also twenty-four horses and five dogs. When the ship went down in the storm, not a single person survived. The only being to outlast the horrible wreck was one dog who was found days later on a nearby island covered in oil and barely breathing. The rescue ships made good on their promise the next morning by returning to the Vanderbilt Reef, but a terrible sight was waiting for them. The waters had calmed now, but all that was left of the Princess Sophia was the very tops of the masts sticking out of the water and bodies, floating around as far as the eye could see. The wreck claimed more lives than any other in the Pacific Northwest. Ten percent of the population of Dawson City was on board, and the wreck decimated the Yukon both in numbers and morale. One hundred and eighty bodies were recovered, floating in the water and brought to Juneau for washing and identification. Eighty-six more would be salvaged from the wreck by divers. If you're keeping track, that's around 266 bodies that were recovered. At least 366 people were on board, leaving another 100 still unaccounted for and very likely still down with the wreckage. We've looked at a lot of ghost ships here on this podcast. We've had one off the shores of Newfoundland, a few in the Maritimes, one on Lake Ontario, a derelict near Nunavut, and even one earlier in this episode. The Princess Sophia is completely unique in that it doesn't appear as a ghost ship floating in the waters and disappearing. No, it's different. It's not a ghost. Its remains at the bottom of the ocean are the part that's haunted. 
Divers who anchor nearby the Princess Sophia wreck will do so in calm conditions, but soon be attacked by huge winds and ugly eight-foot waves that come out of nowhere. Those who descend to the frigid depths of the Lynn Canal to visit the wreckage believe it to be very haunted. It's eerier than other wrecks. The bow is lined with bone-white anemones, waving in the current to welcome the visitors. Beyond them, however, divers have seen other white, misty shapes moving among the wreck as well. The whole scene can be very upsetting to divers, who often feel emotionally drained when visiting it. That upsetting feeling is echoed on the southern bank of Victoria's inner harbour, where all bodies were brought from Juno and laid out for to claim. People walking along the lower causeway at the base of the old steamship terminal will feel just like the divers do, overcome by grief and emptiness. It's no coincidence that the SS Princess Alice, which transported all the corpses from Juneau to Victoria and Vancouver, was nicknamed the Ship of Sorrow. At face value, I imagine the name fits due to the terrible impact the wreck had on the northwestern communities. Behind that, though there might be a little kernel of literal meaning for the nickname. If the causeway in Victoria and the wreck of the Princess Sophia itself are any indication, I can only imagine the horrible sadness that may have imprinted itself into the panels of the Princess Alice as it made its way south, a floating coffin of bloated bodies. A ship of sorrow, indeed. <laughs> For our last story today, we're going to shift gears a bit. All of these stories so far have been much more historically embedded and focused on the lives of these people while they were living and breathing up in the Yukon. This last feature will center more on the fallout of a rather nasty incident, and you'll find you get your more typical haunted house story and your paranormal narrative. Now, just because it's typical doesn't mean it's not worth sharing. In fact, I would be remiss if I didn't include it in today's episode, just as I would be remiss if I didn't share these announcements. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2018 by Touchwood Editions and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo, or in stores pretty much wherever you can find new books. This particular book has had the most thorough account that I found of stories from the territories, and we're very glad Barbara put so much thought into including them. Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2001 by Lone Pine Publishing, and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo. In addition to these two books, we've also got a couple of other published accounts of stories from the Yukon, such as The Wreck of the A.J. Goddard, a sternwheeler from the days of the Klondike Gold Rush by Lindsay Thomas, Doug Davidge, and John Pollock, accessed on yukon.ca. Yukon Paranormal Episodes 1 and 3 on Travel Yukon's YouTube channel. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab, and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. 
The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of this podcast he found, you see. And before nightfall, this episode was all that I listened to with Sam McGee. Or something like that. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. We have a few people to thank today as well. Thank you very kindly to Podbean user Maynard78 for their kind encouragement on the podcast. I'm glad you enjoyed listening to these while camping, but I can't help wonder if listening to stories like these while sleeping out in the woods would help achieve a calming and relaxing experience as campers are so often looking for. Anyway, thanks so much for writing in. Another thank you and a huge one to the Facebook group of Yukon History and Abandoned Places. Firstly, I'm so grateful for the amount of help and support I received from the kind folks there in researching this episode. Secondly, what a cool group they have there. I love reading the articles and seeing the archival photos posted daily. There is some really neat stuff posted there. Our next episode will be released on Thursday, August 15th, and will take us to our company's home of British Columbia. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time, as there are just so many stories we could use for it. This will be the last episode of this podcast series, and of course, I aim to go out with a bang. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2.00pm, everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different one at 7.30pm for each night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception is our Chinatown Daytime History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. Okay. Are you done with all the historical lenses we've been using and ready for a tried and true, plain and simple, cut and dry, honest to goodness ghost story? Good. So am I. Who was LaSalle? Not much is known about this man other than he was a cantankerous old hermit who lived alone in a cabin far northwest of Dawson City. After several weeks with no sign of him in nearby communities, a few men went to check up on him. They found LaSalle's body hacked to bits, blood everywhere lying near his cabin. They buried him on the site, but refused to go into the cabin, citing very uncomfortable feelings. No one ever found out exactly how LaSalle had met his fate, but folk in the area whispered of his cabin somewhere deep in the woods waiting for the innocent passerby to fall victim to the ghost that still haunts the area. You can see where this is going. Two prospectors, Nelson and Swanson, arrived in the Yukon one winter. They set up camp around the community of Forty Mile, well down the Yukon River from Dawson City. While on one of their first ventures out into the forest, they became hopelessly lost in a blizzard, 
the bitter cold stinging their skin as they looked around for the path back home, wherever that was. If they remained stationary, they would surely freeze to death, so they had to just pick a direction and go with it, wandering through the trees and praying that they were inching closer to Forty Mile. The outlook was not very pretty, and right when they were about to give up, they came upon a cabin in the woods. It seemed to be abandoned, so they took shelter inside, making a fire and settling down to wait out the storm. Inside the cabin was a truly remarkable improvement over the deadly conditions outside in the storm, but for some reason both Swanson and Nelson began to feel extremely uneasy. Perhaps it was just from exhaustion, or the knowledge that should they have passed by the cabin where they now sat warming up, they would likely already be dead. Regardless, they tried to push the uneasiness from their minds and lay down to sleep. They were woken up, however, hours later, by a strange moaning and wailing heard over the wind. It wasn't the wind, though, or anything out in the storm which had died down a little. No, the sounds seemed to be coming from somewhere inside their cabin. There was a door to a second room which the two prospectors had shut upon entering so as to keep the heat condensed in the space where they lay. Nelson and Swanson looked at each other. The sounds seemed to emanate from just behind the door. Terrified, they reached out to open the door, ready to defend themselves against whatever was concealed behind it. Silently, they grabbed hold of the handle and gave a big pull, but the door wouldn't open. It had closed so easily hours earlier, but now was somehow either locked or stuck and wouldn't budge no matter how hard they yanked on it. The sounds from behind it started to change, shifting to a piteous male voice calling out for help. Nelson, fearing they had unwittingly trapped someone on the other side, ran out into the storm and around the shack to peer into the window leading into that room. In it he saw a third man, vaguely misty in form, lurking right on the other side of the door. Nelson ran back inside to tell Swanson to get away from it as fast as possible, but before he could utter a single word, Swanson had already enacted his plan. Pale-faced, Swanson was now dealing with loud cries and shrieks coming from beyond the locked door. Although they hadn't been in the Yukon for long, Swanson had heard snippets of the old LaSalle cabin rumors and surmised that they might be dealing with the old man's ghost. Perhaps he could help LaSalle in some way. Shouting over the noises of the shrieking and of the winter storm, Swanson asked if this was the spirit of LaSalle. He had hardly finished speaking when everything, the shrieking, the crying, the moaning, even the wind outside, fell deathly silent. For a moment, there was just this great, empty pause. It was just long enough for the two prospectors to believe that maybe everything had calmed down. The instant their shoulders dropped and they exhaled in relief, the door burst open to reveal a man with jagged wounds, covered in blood, and who looked like he had been worked over with an axe. The figure stumbled toward them, and the sounds of moans and cries filled the air, along with the return of the raging storm outside. Nelson and Swanson screamed and ran back into the chaotic darkness. They ran as fast as they could for what seemed like hours, making their way through trees and snowbanks. They had no idea which direction they were traveling, they had little concern for if they were even heading toward home. 
All they needed was to get as far away from that cabin and that horrible, mutilated body as possible. Somehow, they would never be able to recall, but somehow they ended back up at Forty Mile, safe but certainly not sound. They were terrified out of their wits, and it would be days before they could speak to anyone about the horror they had encountered out in the forest. It eventually came out in a report from the Klondike Nugget newspaper, the journalist of which immediately took their account to be true. No one, he claimed, could possibly pretend to be as scared as Nelson and Swanson were when they recounted their ill-fated adventure. That was the last that was ever reported about LaSalle's old cabin. It's quite possible that no one has come across it since. It's also very possible that it still stands, out alone in the middle of the forest northwest of Dawson City, just waiting for the next lost and lonely travelers to seek refuge inside its walls.